My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow with their communities. My name is Dr. Jacoby McGill Wilson. Welcome to part two of our discussion on environmental justice and voting. That's why I said, Renice, to a colleagues today, and I've been saying, I mean, we've had this conversation before too. If this money is not used to transform communities, transform lives, lead to restorative justice, right? We're talking about restoring communities to what they were. But, like, I'm going to go to uh, President Bonds, build back better. We're talking about build back better what they were. We're talking about build back better, y'all, because they need to be built back. We're talking about intergenerational restorative justice, right? And this is a way the Green New Deal that people talked about, that was a concept. The, we have the money to make that real, but it has to be wealth creation, economic equality, economic opportunity for folks that have been dumped on and left behind, as Bernice already eloquently says. So I'm going to leave for the audience, but say a few things to, to kind of give my spin on it. We got to collaborate, as Bernice said. We got to ideate. We got to iterate. We got to compensate. And we got to liberate. We want to get the liberation of folks from these hazards and from these bad infrastructure, right? So I appreciate that powerful, you know, statement that you made about how do we center communities? And I think you said it right, Renice, about the folks who are most impacted, how to be driving this work, right? How you make sure, again, going back to what this podcast is about, my block counts. To make my block count, the people who live in my neighborhood have to be doing the work. So workforce development, to make my block counts, the folks that are actually building the infrastructure, they have to be owned by our people. That's right. To make my block count, my community count, to make sure that money that we're getting and the building infrastructure, that dollar needs to hit that community 20, 30, 40, 50 times to address inequality, to get the equality. So we, we want to let the audience know that you need to be fighting for this. So you're in these sectors, right? You want to be in this sector. Just don't focus on jobs. Don't just focus on workforce development. You should focus, as Bernice said, on ownership, on ownership, right? So I want to again, you know, Bernice, thank you for those powerful statements and uplift your role in this movement. And thank you for all the work that you've done in the movement. So I'm going to shift a little bit now. You were at the signing, Administrator Regan, signing this new office into existence, right? You know, I think it's like, you talk about these iconic moments in different social movements. I think it's a very, that, I mean, I was in a picture. I was like, ooh, how did I get in the picture? I'm not sure. But it's an iconic moment in the Egypt movement. You were in the photo, right, for the uh, signing of Executive Order 12898. That's correct? Yes, I was. President Clinton right at his elbow. That's an iconic photo, the photo of folks in Warren County laying across the ground. That's an iconic photo. So can you talk about the importance of the fight in Warren County 40 years ago? Share your role in the fight. I did not have a role in the organizing that went on on the ground. My role was to to build upon the fundamental questions that they were asking, that the organizing was about, that the fight was about, to transform their questions into the framework for a research project that then lifted up 
the issues that they were fighting about in Warren County to be emblematic of things that were happening in Black communities and other communities of color across the nation. And this was the question that they were asking. Why did the state of North Carolina decide to build this PCB landfill in our community? There was no public process. There was no public announcement. The next thing we knew, we saw bulldozers moving dirt. And we knew we had to do something, meaning they, the community on the ground in Warren County, North Carolina, knew they had to do something. So they organized and they mobilized local churches, um, the United Church of Christ there, and Baptist churches and others mobilized and organized using the strategies that we knew to be effective to pull people together to fight for their own interests as we had done in the civil rights movement. They used those same strategies there in Warren County. But they were asking this question. What made us so unique in Warren County? Why did you decide to build this facility here? And why didn't you come to talk to us and let us know? Why was there no public process? And why did we not have a voice and a role in saying that we think this is a good use of land in our community or we think it's not and it should go somewhere else? Why did they not have a voice? Why were they not consulted? Why was there no public accountability? So those are the questions that they were asking. And what's so unique about Warren County? So we took that, the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, and developed a research project called a Special Project on Toxic Injustice. And we wanted to ask three questions that came directly out of that movement and mobilization in Warren County. Where are hazardous waste landfills located in the United States of America, across the country? What is the residential zip code in which those hazardous waste sites are located? And what is the racial composition of the residential zip codes in which those hazardous waste sites are located? Is there a correlation between those three things? And so it was my job to pull that data from US EPA's database on um, Superfund sites and hazardous waste sites, the national priorities list. This was a 1984 to 1986 list to identify the distribution of those hazardous waste sites across the country what residential zip codes were they located and what was the racial composition in which those hazardous waste sites were located. And we had an independent company, Public Data Access, also running data sets, looking at a variety of different metrics. So we looked at per capita income. We looked at level of educational attainment. We looked at home value. We looked at a whole bunch of variables. Race was one of the variables we looked at. And we wanted to know, is there a correlation between any of those other variables and the location of these hazardous waste sites. And what we found is what the folks in Warren County knew from day one, that race proved to be the most statistically significant indicator in where those hazardous waste sites were located. So it was my job to aggregate that data. It was my job to create those maps. And it was my job to help write, although Charles Lee wrote most of it. And it was my job to get it actually printed and then published and distributed the landmark report, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, published by the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice in April of 1987. None of that, Jacoby, none of that would have been possible. We wouldn't have thought to do it had it not been for people throwing down in Warren County, North Carolina. And I mean, they threw down. I was talking to Dolly Burwell in North Carolina, and I just want to say that um, if you want to know more about this work, more about this movement, you just need to Google the name Dolly Burwell. And Dolly was one of the principal organizers of this movement. Dolly and I have been friends for a long time, and we bonded not only about this work 
um, that they did, but we bonded about the activism of the women in the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, of which Dolly is a member, I am a member, and several other women who were involved in this work were members of the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice and United Church of Christ, period. We said, you know, the brothers are always getting a lot of attention. Ben Chavis, Reverend Leon White, who, who was one of the leaders of the struggle, Charles Lee, Reverend Charles Cobb, and so many other people, Reverend Wright from Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, and so many other people around the country. But the men are always getting the attention. But the women are the ones doing the tactical organizing and the throwdown, right? And Dolly always wanted us to bond around making sure that the women got lifted up in United Church of Christ. And I've just always, always loved that about her. But anyway, she drugged me by the hand when we were in North Carolina a few weeks ago, Jacoby, and she introduced me to all these people. Now, as long as I had been affiliated with this place, that day was the first day I was actually physically ever in Warren County. And what's so odd about that is that my late husband's family was from a county in southwestern Virginia that was right across the line from Warren County. So Warren County is the first county in North Carolina, northwestern North Carolina. And my husband's family was from this other town. And we would drive there a lot to see his family. But we also would drive to see Savvy Horn in Chapel Hill a lot, right? And that's the way we drove to Savvy's house. So we drove right through Warren County many, many, many times, but I never stopped. So finally, I'm there and Dolly is just dragging me by the hand and introducing me to all these people. Y'all heard me talk about my friend, Bernice. This is Bernice, right? And I must have met a hundred people that day, local people. And I want to say that one of the the great things about that day is that these people are still alive. Mm -hmm. In so many of our communities, so many people have died before their time. But these people are still alive. Dolly 74, right? And there are all these people of every age range. There they were at that event. And it was a glorious thing to celebrate them and to celebrate the fact that none of us would be doing this work. None of us would have had the lives that we've had, had it not been for them throwing down and standing up and saying, we're not going to take this, right? And no other community should have to take it either. So I did research based on their organizing. And you know, if you're going to do research, if you're going to have a pedagogy, if you're going to have a set of research paradigms that you're looking at, why not it be centered around social movement on the ground in communities and struggle, you know, and that's the beginning of my career. And I say this, and I know you've heard me say this before for your listeners. I hope that you either have had this experience or you will have this experience. Sometimes the universe speaks to you. And the universe says, you thought you were going over there. I thought I was going to be a civil rights attorney. That's what I had always seen myself doing. And when I did this research, I said, "Mm -mm -mm. this is my work. This is my purpose. This is what I was meant to do. This is the civil rights battle, but in the environmental lane. And ain't nobody fighting this battle in this lane. So let's throw down right here. And that's where I've been for the last 36 years. That's powerful. You know, I want to move us forward to Justice 40 initiative now and talk about that a little bit. So Justice 40 is part of uh, President Bob's Executive Order 1408. So basically, it's ensuring that federal agencies deliver 40% of the overall benefits of climate, clean energy, affordable and sustainable housing, clean water, and other investments to uh, disadvantaged, underserved, overburdened communities, communities that Bernice has described in this discussion to this point. In total, there's hundreds of federal programs representing billions of dollars that we talked about before in annual investment. 
including those we talked about in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, and to really maximize benefits to disadvantaged communities through the Justice for Initiative. So the question for you, Bernice, is what do you feel are the most important commitments that we need to make through Justice 40? What do you hope to see our progress on those commitments in the next five to 10 years? There could be just some transformative things that happen, right? We could see a much more fulsome investment in public transportation that meets the needs of underserved communities, that modernizes public transportation, that reduces the carbon burden of systems of public transportation. That will save lives if we do that. That will save lives. That's a great thing that could happen. We could see a lot of attention focused on carbon emission reductions across sectors, at airports where we tend to live near, at ports where we tend to live near, car infrastructure, big truck infrastructure, 18-wheelers, right? That we transition our transportation system to one that is not based on fossil fuels. If that were to happen, it would save thousands of lives. And we tend to live near that infrastructure where all those carbon emissions are going back and forth through, around, over, and under where we live. That's about EJ communities. It's about every community. It will improve air quality for the nation as a whole, for the hemisphere as a whole. But how about we start right where we live, right where our communities are? So that's one thing that could happen. We could see infrastructure that's modernized and or here's a big one. We could rethink that highway system. We could rebuild and restore some of the communities that were destroyed by the building of the national highway system and then the corollary state highway system. We could do some restorative justice there. That would be extraordinary, right? And I, I want to say this, the historic Greenwood community of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Black Wall Street that yes, we, are, we are only recently learning about. People know a part of that story. And a part of that story is there was an enormous race riot that destroyed the community. But what you probably don't know is that Black folks rebuilt that community brick by brick, store by store, house by house, business by business, and they restored their community. But that community doesn't exist anymore. It's only about four square blocks of it left. You know what really did them in? Was when they built the highway that mm-hmm. completely destroyed them and took them out forever. That has been one of the most destructive things that have happened to communities of color, to immigrant communities, tribal communities, low-income communities, is the complete dismantling of our communities and the economic vibrancy in our communities because they wanted to build a highway system that would mostly get white folks from point A to point B and trampling on our communities in the process, which just not factored in as a consequence that they really needed to pay attention to. There's a lot that can be done there in terms of restorative justice, as well as we can decommission some of these damn highways. Exactly. They're not all intimately needed. Like they call it the highway to nowhere. I think it's Kennedy highway in Baltimore, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They took out huge sections of thriving black neighborhood. They tore down homes and houses that people own to build a highway that they ultimately didn't use and nobody used. The flagrant disregard for our lives is so intimately woven into the story of infrastructure in this country. The racism that's built into that. So let's try to do some restorative justice on that front. And- Let's build some infrastructure that people really need, like modern drinking water systems, 
like flood mitigation systems. There's so much that can be done. It, it boggles the mind because we actually can think about it. We can design it and we can make it happen. We can also think about flood mitigation that seeks to unchannelize some rivers in the natural flow of rivers, the Mississippi being one of the biggest to think about, mm -hmm. right from the headwaters to the Gulf of Mexico and all the destructive things that we've done trying to design, redesign and restructure that river so that big infrastructure, big ships moving grain from the Midwest, the Upper Plains, out to market, out the Gulf of Mexico, from the oil refineries, moving oil and chemicals along the river. We channelized the river. We destroyed its natural path so that they would have an easier shot to move those big ships in and out. And the destruction that came from that, the tearing up of natural ecosystems that made those same communities less impacted by hurricanes and tornadoes, mm -hmm. et cetera. We denuded the environment. We denuded the landscape. Let's restore them. How much money is that going to cost? A whole bunch of money, right? It's trillions by, I don't know. Probably, probably is, but it's certainly worth doing. It's certainly worth doing. Ecological restoration, it's certainly worth doing. And it's a growth industry. People yep. got to do that. You can't do that by machine. You can do some of it with technology, but some of it is just people out there replanting mangroves. It put a lot of people to work. A lot of people to work. So there's a lot that can be done. Um, I think what we need is imagination. We need imagination matched with commitment and matched with a sense of how can we undo so much of the damage that's been done? How can we make these communities whole? Exactly. How can we do restorative justice in the form of infrastructure, environmental investment, ecological investment, forest restoration, restoring mine-scarred land, cleaning up hazardous mm -hmm. waste sites, and flood mitigation, flood mitigation, flood mitigation, because that's only going to get worse unless we step up and do something. So there's a lot that can be done given the direction that we see this administration moving in. It's important that we all come together and we say that this is what could and should happen. But at the end of the day, the way that you make sure we continue to have this runway to do this is people got to show up to vote. People got to show up to vote. You got to vote in your local elections. You got to vote in your state elections. You got to vote in the federal elections. Leave no question on the ballot unanswered. Leave no vote behind. And young You're people... I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. You got to show up. You got to show up in every venue that you can. Half the battle is just showing up. And we got to show up for ourselves, for our communities, for our interests, for our future, for the children that we owe so much to because we've done so much damage and destruction. We owe them everything. And the least we can do is show up to vote to make sure that we still have the political runway to do what needs to be done. We have this, right? We can do this, but we just have to do our part. And our part is connected to all these other things. 50% of any issue is just showing up. And we got to show up. You know, I like to say that making democracy work, it takes work. So Bernice is saying, we got to show up. We got to remember I said up. before, y'all, to make your block count, to make your neighborhood count, to make your community count, you have to show up. Now, let me uh, shift gears to get to this Title VI. It's getting, you know, talking about this EPA office again. Let's discuss in this new Office of Environmental and Civil Rights. We'll talk more about Title VI. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give a little bit of background to the listeners. Under Title VI, the EPA has the authority to ensure that agencies 
or who received funding did not act in a discriminatory manner, as Renice stated earlier. However, historically, the EPA has failed to enforce Title VI. According to the Center for Public Health and Integrity, the EPA has dismissed or rejected Title VI claims more than 9 out of 10 times with no investigation, many for procedural reasons. There have also been excessive delays just to make jurisdictional decisions. In some cases, investigations were pending for more than a decade or maybe more than two decades. If you think about the administrative complaint that my folks in West End Revitalization Association, Jamaica Wilson, Miss Brenda Wilson, shout out to y'all, submitted back in, I think, 1999. Even the small number of cases that yielded any action, about 25%, the Civil Rights Office has rarely closed investigations with formal sanctions or remedies in its almost 30-year history of processing environmental claims. The EPA has never made a formal fine of a Title VI violation. They may dispute that. The EPA's blatant dismissal of Title VI issues has led to disastrous consequences for communities. The communities that Renee's been talking about during this podcast. Now, with the establishment of this new office, and also, as we discussed earlier, the Justice 40 initiative, there's a new commitment by the EPA to prioritize its role in promoting environmental justice. So question, Ms. Vernice, how do you think the EPA would demonstrate its commitment to communities and enforce Title VI moving forward? I had done a uh, tape the interview for EPA. This has been the first summer of the pandemic. So that was what, the summer of 2020. And that um, interview has still not been aired. And so I ran into, at your conference, um, okay. At the University of Maryland's conference, I ran into the communication staff person who was responsible for filming it and editing it. And I asked her, she's had a baby and the baby is two years old since we recorded this interview. And I asked her, has it been shown yet? She said, no, they're still trying to work out some issues. And here's the issue that they explained to me. I went on a bit of a rant about lack of Title VI enforcement. And my rant was this. If you want to show me that you really understand the significance and importance of this issue and you embrace that area of your statutory authority, US EPA, then I need to start seeing some affirmative findings of racial discrimination. How hard is this? And apparently it pissed some people off. And so folks talked to me and they said, you know, Vernice, you just don't understand what's going on. I said, I'm sorry. I am a co-convener of something called the Title VI Alliance. We have been working on pressing EPA and the Department of Justice to do more in enforcing Title VI of the Civil Rights Act in terms of affirmative findings of racial discrimination in the environmental context for 12 years, 12 straight years, no let up. We are on the record blistering comments we've been filing with EPA and the Department of Justice. We have one metric. We need you all to render more affirmative findings of racial discrimination where people file Title VI complaints with the agency and or they file federal lawsuits. But y'all twist yourselves into pretzels. Try not to do that, right? So there have been more affirmative findings, not dozens of them, but there have been more. There are active um, investigations going on in Alabama by the Department of Justice, in Houston, Texas by the Department of Justice, And EPA has some active um, investigations going on. So they're trying to step up their game. But the thing that you left out about the federal government's authority under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act is this. If they find in conducting an investigation that you have, in fact, 
discriminated against people of color or, or other protected groups as defined under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They can demand that you give whatever federal money they gave to you, they can demand that you give it back. Now, exactly. that's the game changer. That's the game changer. If you know there are going to be consequences for actively discriminating against people, then maybe you will stop. Those consequences have to be made real. It's not just a guidance document. It's not just a piece of paper. It's I'm coming to do the investigation. And if I find in conducting the investigation that you have actively discriminated against these protected groups of people, you're going to give that money back. Now, here's a, a local example of that for us in Maryland. The former governor of the state of Maryland, one of his first official acts as governor was to say on the record to the Federal Department of Transportation that the state of Maryland was no longer going to pursue a multi-year effort that was being pursued to develop a light rail line in Baltimore City to connect East and West Baltimore to the downtown central business district. East and West Baltimore are the blackest parts of Baltimore, which is kind of ironic and redundant because really there's like 80% of the population is black. But nonetheless, you could not get from West Baltimore to East Baltimore and then to downtown with any direct public transportation. So they're going to build this red line. As an urban planner, I can tell you from having done a little bit of work on the red line, it was the most comprehensive planning, transportation planning project I had ever seen done, ever. It was the gold standard for transportation planning. And the governor comes in, the former governor, and decides that, yeah, we're not doing that. After receiving millions of federal transportation dollars to do the planning and design for that project, people were outraged. People in the city of Baltimore were outraged. People across the state were outraged because it was just such a good project. And it had so many ancillary benefits that would it would deliver for Baltimore City and for um, East and West Baltimore. And the governor says, no, we're not doing that. Now, this is what should have happened. The moment that he said that, the U.S. Department of Transportation should have gone in and done an investigation, found that there was active discrimination against the African-American populations in East and West Baltimore and got that money back. But they mm -hmm. didn't do that. What did they use the money for? They used the money to build more roads that service the more rural populations in Western Maryland and the Eastern Shore of Maryland. It was a clear violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, a clear violation. So they should have given that money back. You don't want to do it. We think it's a bad idea that you don't want to do it, but you can't just use the money and then decide that you want to do whatever the hell you want to do. You got to give the money back. So- we should not see any more instances of that kind of flagrant violation of civil rights law in this administration. So you ask, what does it mean? It means that as Robin Morris Collin, the senior advisor to EPA Administrator Michael Regan for Environmental Justice, said at that event in Warren County, no more casual racism and no more checking the box. She said it twice. No more casual racism where everybody does what the hell they want to do to people of color, and then they just keep it moving. And somehow you still get more federal money. Somehow you still get more federal authority. Somehow you still get more partnership with the federal government. But yet you can actively discriminate against people of color. No more casual racism. That's what this office means to me. No more casual racism in the Environmental Protection Agency. That's powerful. You think about it. You're using my money that's supposed to go to build a transfer system for me, and you snatch my money and use it 
for another part of the state. You're talking about inequities and planning zone and developments. Vernice just said that's an example of transportation racism right there. Wow, powerful statements, Vernice. I love talking to you because, you know, you, you're an icon in the movement. You always come with that fire. Hopefully the audience appreciates the depth and knowledge that Vernice just shared on these topics around civil rights, around Title VI, around environmental justice, around Warren County, and how you can be part of the movement too, right? As I said before, we got to collaborate. We got to ideate. We got to iterate, right? We got to compensate. When he said that, show people the money, pay people the money for that time. And we yeah. also got to liberate. So I'm a sign off. Thank you again, Renice. This is My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow, help that money flow in their communities. Those who are at the front line should be at the front line when it comes to investments. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again, uh, Bernice, again, icon in the movement, also my neighbor. And, uh, you know, we live you know, near each other in the Bowie area. See you next time. Dr. Wilson, out. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.